The Navy's littoral combat ship program has never lived up to its promises. Although it scaled back the program, the Navy still plans to field 35 of the ships, but they have serious and persistent problems. We get highlights of the latest look-see from the Director of Defense Capabilities and Management Issues at the Government Accountability Office, Diana Maurer. Diana, good to have you back. It's great to be back on the show, Tom. So the Littoral Combat Ship Program, it, it seems like we've been talking about it forever. What is the status of it now? It's not going away, but it's not expanding. It's kind of a steady state at this point. Right, yeah. So this, this is a program that's been around for going on 20 years. At this point, the Navy has awarded contracts to purchase a grand total of 35 of these ships. And just as a reminder to the folks listening that the littoral combat ship is a relatively small combat ship that's designed to operate in relatively shallow waters. So the initial concept, they were thinking a lot about, for example, the, the Persian Gulf or the Caribbean, other places around the world. It's designed to perform multiple missions. So some of them are meant to sweep up mines. Others are designed to hunt for enemy submarines. And others are designed to combat other naval ships of, of opposing forces. The program has had a lot of significant challenges along the way. There was essentially a near reset of the program back in 2016, and our report looked at the Navy's status in in addressing a number of significant changes to the program that came out of Navy review six years ago. Sure, and how many hulls do they actually have at this point out of the Plan 35? They have about two dozen of those. The others are in production and they'll be continuing to be taking deliveries over the course of the next several years. And in this report, you found that they just have trouble on the sustainability of them and also just basic performance? Yeah, exactly. So our report was focused on how well is the littoral combat ship performing in the real world? And we found a number of significant challenges. The folks at the Defense Department who test weapon systems before they're actually deployed have found a number of serious deficiencies pretty much across the board. So they found problems in the weapons that the LCS is designed to use. They found problems with reliability in key systems. The testing community within DUD had concerns about the fundamental ability of the LCS to perform its missions and survive in a combat situation. These were serious and significant problems that were identified during testing. We found that the Navy was taking sort of a a whack-a-mole approach to address these problems, we recommended that the Navy take a more comprehensive approach to triage, focus on the areas of greatest concern, and start working through them in a comprehensive, coordinated way. And does the Navy, in your opinion, know what to triage, what would come up in a triage? Because if there's reliability, say, with propulsion, well, that's pretty much a deal killer for everything else. And if the weapons don't work, well, in some sense, that's a deal killer for everything else. So where do they begin, do you think? Well, I think that there's a long list of problems that still need to be addressed. And to give them some credit where credit is due, they are taking steps to address those problems. Propulsion, I think, would rise towards the top of the list. And one of the things that we found in our reported in, in our review was that 10 out of 11 recent operational missions had to be scrubbed early because of problems with engines. That's a deal breaker. If your engines don't work properly, then you can't perform your mission. And big picture, what that means is the LCS is still far from delivering the combat capability that was promised and what the military wants it to do. I guess there's no oars long enough for a littoral combat ship if the engine should fail. We're speaking with Diana Maurer. She's Director of Defense Capabilities and Management Issues at the Government Accountability Office. And is one of the issues trying to be new technology for everything? 
In other words, the littoral combat ship, the hull shape is unusual. There's a couple of different ones. I think there's even a double hull in one of the series and different materials than conventional ships. But did they try to innovate everything, and therefore maybe they could have used a conventional engine, even in an unconventional hull, and avoided that issue? Well, certainly, if he could go back in a time machine to when this program started around 2004, I think they would do a lot of things differently. And the complexity that was baked into the system from day one is something that's come to haunt the program for, for all the all the years since. I mean, you're right. There are multiple versions of the hull. There are multiple versions of these mission packages. There are different mission modules within mission packages. There were ways that they planned to actually maintain the ship that at the time were meant to be cutting edge, but in practice proved to be wildly impractical and expensive to implement. They're trying to undo all of that, but it's difficult to do. To some extent, this is a system that was designed to be a very complicated Swiss army knife. And the problem is you couldn't necessarily pull out the blades when you needed them. And it proved to be very expensive to maintain and operate. You know, the cost estimates on the ship, the lifetime life cycle cost estimates of the ship went from $38 billion to over $60 billion from 2011 to 2018. And the final cost is probably likely to be much higher than that. And looking at your list of recommendations this time from January of this year, I'm struck by who it is that you're recommending to Secretary of the Navy, Secretary of the Navy, Secretary of the Navy, Secretary of the Navy, and on and on, maybe the Chief of Naval Operations. But that's about as low as it goes. So I think reading between the lines, you're saying the Navy really should consider the whole program, whether to continue with it, if you have all these recommendations for the secretarial level and the Chief of Naval Operations to do these assessments. Yes, we were very intentional about directing our recommendations at the very top of the Navy, and that's a function of the concerns that we found, not only in the ability of the system to perform operationally, but also in updating the cost estimates, right? Those are way out of whack and need to be updated to ensure good visibility within the Navy as well as with Congress. And also we had we had recommendations around ensuring that all of the findings from the 2016 review were fully implemented. Probably our most impactful recommendation was number six in our report, which was that the Navy think long and hard about deploying this system operationally until it had figured out a way to close the gaps between what it wants to do with the LCS and what the LCS can actually do in the real world. And at the start of the interview, you mentioned some of the original intentions for this that had to do with the war on terror era, if you will. And now we're in the era of great powers competition and naval doctrine and military doctrine have all been updated. But it strikes me that the littoral combat ship could, as a concept, survive into the new era of competition because, you know, Taiwan, Odessa, there are lots of areas where we have conflict with mainly with China, but who knows with Russia, other countries, Iran, that are littoral in nature. So it's not as if the idea is obsolete. No, the idea is definitely not obsolete, and it's certainly a critical capability that the Navy needs to develop. The Navy, for example, currently has MCM mine countermeasure ships that are extremely old and extremely difficult to maintain, and it needs the capability to find mines and sweep them out of the way. The LCS was designed in part to address that vital mission need. The LCS has not demonstrated the ability that it can perform that mission. That's a major problem. It's also not clear whether the LCS in its current state and what its current capabilities would be able to fully execute its desired missions in a high-end conflict. 
And that sort of gets to the heart of the testing problems the DoD testing community has identified. And that's the heart of our of our recommendations that, that the Navy take serious and significant actions to address those problems. And the Navy, to its credit, agreed and is in the process of doing that. But it's going to take some years before everything is completely wrapped up. Diana Maurer is Director of Defense Capabilities and Management Issues at the Government Accountability Office. As always, thanks so much. Thank you very much. We'll post this interview plus a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? 
I would describe it, hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my 
my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.